Friends, you know, it's been such a joy in this season to go through this bonfire with the Sages sermon series, whether in person or via email. I've had many people reach out and, you know, just share an appreciation that we're getting into God's Word and we're taking a look at these phenomenal sages of Scripture, these wise heroes of the faith from maybe a slightly different perspective. We're not throwing away Scripture and just imagining things. We're opening up God's Word, but but approaching it from a different way. And it's opening up our hearts and our minds to see things either we've never seen before, things that we've just kind of taken for granted or forgotten along the way. If you haven't been with us during this sermon series, it's called Bonfire with the Sages. You can go to our YouTube channel and search for Bel Air Church to find that channel and look for any of the sermons entitled Bonfire with the Sages. We've been taking a look at the life of Abraham, and Mary, and Moses, and Joseph, and Job, and, and many others. And today we're going to get to a phenomenal woman in the New Testament by the name of Martha. But if, again, you haven't been with us, you might wonder, bonfire? with the what, what is this all about? Well, we've been exploring how, in what really is a, a pretty natural setting during the biblical era, In the Old Testament and the New Testament, we believe that many of them sat around a bonfire. It was around bonfires that they cooked. It was around bonfires that they kept warm. It was around bonfires that they had community. In fact, there's many scenes in Scripture that that explicitly describe something happening around a bonfire. And in my own life, just on a, a personal note, I've experienced some of the most profound and and deep conversations around a bonfire because there's enough time to connect with somebody else. You know, to go through a bundle of wood uh, isn't quick, it isn't rushed. And so there's something about the environment, the, you know, the warm flickering of the fire, connecting with somebody at ground level face-to-face that really opens us up if we allow that space to do so. And so in this season, as I wear this shirt, gifted to me by my grandfather, thinking about not just the sages in Scripture, but some of the wise sages in our lives. It's an opportunity to take the questions that we're asking of these biblical characters, but also to take these questions to ask of each other. All right, so before we get to the text, before we get to a conversation with Martha around the bonfire, let's pray so that the Spirit of God would lead and guide us. God, I thank you that you give us the gift of your word. You tell us that scripture is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. You tell us that all of scripture is God-breathed and useful for correction. All of it, all of it useful for correction, teaching, and reproof. And so as we come to your word, would you lead us by the power of your spirit? Would we draw closer to you? And would we become, through the spirit, more and more transformed, in the image of Jesus. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray and we say together, amen. All right, so I want you to imagine, I know this is a stretch for some of us, many of us, we're getting used to this, but I just want you just to imagine wherever you are that you're around a bonfire. And if it helps to close your eyes and just kind of picture what it would be like surrounding in this circle of people, myself and others, people you know and people you don't know, around a a warm, glowing, flickering fire, sparks flying, the crackling of the wood. I want you to imagine yourself in the most comfortable chair possible. You're cozied up. You've got your favorite drink. 
again, you're not in the second or third or back row peering in. You're, you're, you're right there. You're, you're right there, right in the thick of things. And as we get into this, I'm going to ask the same three questions that I've been asking every biblical sage. And I start off with this and I say, Martha, my first of three questions for you is this. Looking back on your life, what is the one thing that God called you? The one thing that God asked you to take up in your life? And in that moment, there's a hush around the bonfire. Everybody looks at Martha and she who has been looking at the bonfire looks up and she answers. So, you know, looking back on my life, a lot of details that I know about that weren't recorded in scripture. I know that how my life was recorded in scripture was bookended by two meals. And the trajectory of my life, the transformation of my life happened between that first and second meal. And the one thing that God called me to take up in my life was simply this. It was a laser-like focus on the one thing that was the most important thing in my life. But in order to explain that, I have to tell you a story of something that happened in between those two meals. And it had to do with my brother. Lazarus and I and my younger sister Mary had been living in Bethany for quite some time. Of course, earlier I had a meal with Jesus. That was my first encounter with him. And Jesus had left after that first meal. And we had heard about Jesus being someone who was altogether different than all the other rabbis, all the other teachers, all the other people who claimed to do miracles we heard about Jesus, that he was one who gave sight to the blind, somebody who enabled the, the deaf to hear, somebody who enabled those who couldn't walk to be able to, to move freely. He was somebody who invited the margins in. He was someone altogether different. And so when my brother Lazarus fell ill, and it was an illness unlike any other illness we had ever experienced before. Something about this was different. Our first reaction in that moment was to send word to Jesus. But then the days went by. We wondered if he got the message. We wondered if he even cared about us, if he did get the message because he was close enough to return that very day and yet the day turned into the next and the next day turned into the next and still he was not there. And finally, giving up all hope, my brother Lazarus died. And then another day went by. And another day went by. And another day went by. And now finally, my brother Lazarus has been dead and buried for four days. You got to understand, in our culture, the Jewish culture, there was this hope, there was this belief that possibly something could happen in the span of three days, but now we're past. It was, we're beyond hope. He was dead as dead could be. And then we get word that Jesus was coming. And so my sister Mary and I, so filled with grief that we had lost our brother that Jesus hadn't come, that Jesus hadn't done what we wanted him to do, both filled with grief, responded differently in that moment. 
She didn't want to leave. She did not want to go and talk to Jesus, and yet I had to confront him face to face. And so I left my sister Mary, and I went to Jesus. He was two miles outside Bethany, and I finally got to him. He wasn't even there yet, and I met him on the road, and I said, the first thing I said was Jesus. If you would have just, if you would have just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And yet... I know that God will do whatever you ask. Now, in this moment, filled with grief, filled with sorrow, filled with frustration, filled with disappointment, I was also filled with a sliver of hope that though Jesus seemingly had let me down doing the thing that I wanted him to do to save my brother, to rescue my brother, I still held out hope that there was something possibly that he could do. And in that moment, those two truths presented to him, you could have saved him, but now I know that God can do whatever you ask. He responded. He looked me in the eye. And he said this. And I'll never forget these words. Your brother will rise again. So simple. So succinct. And yet I heard those words through the only framework that I had ever considered resurrection to exist. And so I responded. I said, yes, I, yes, I understand that he will one day rise at the last day among the resurrection of the dead. You know, it's important for you to understand that in our Jewish culture, in our Jewish belief, we did not believe and we didn't have any prior construct to an individual rising from the grave. It was impossible. That it never existed before. We, we imagined that there would be one day, a final day, where there would be a general resurrection that God's people would raise up from the grave. And so I responded and I said, yes, Jesus, I understand that in the final day, in the last day, my brother will rise again. And in that moment, I was downcast. And yet I'll never forget what Jesus said to me in that moment. He said, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. All who believe, though they may die, will live again. And those who believe though they live, will never die. Martha, do you believe this? And in that moment, something shifted in my heart. And the best way I could describe it is the thing that God called me to take up in my life. It was a laser-like focus on the one thing that was the most important thing in my life. And that one thing was Jesus. It wasn't the circumstances. It wasn't what I wanted. It was Jesus. There was something about how he said it in that moment. He wasn't talking about resurrection as a concept. He says, no, no, I, I am the resurrection. He didn't talk about life and life to the full as a principle or way of doing things. He says, no, no, I, I am the life. And in that moment, I realized I understood the purpose of my life was to have a, a laser-like focus on the one thing that was the most important thing in my life, and it was a person. And his name is Jesus, who was the fulfillment of all the things that I had longed for in my entire 
life and I had found him and in that place, I believed. And so I responded in that moment. I said, I do believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God that has come into the world. And in that moment, Martha paused and she looked down in the fire and, you know, so often as bonfires allow us to do so, it gives us time to just, to reflect, to just, you know, to, to take in what we've just heard and to, in the silence, imagine what that means for us. And I think about Martha saying that there is this one thing, and this one thing isn't something you do, it isn't a circumstance, it isn't a situation, but that one thing is a person, and that person's name is Jesus. And I look on my own life, and I realize that there are, there are a lot of things that compete for my attention, a lot of good things that compete for my attention. And yet it is this great reminder that there is one thing behind all those things, one thing above all those things, one thing that is more foundational than all those things, and it is the person who is God in the flesh, who is the maker of heaven and earth in the flesh, and it is Jesus. And what about you? You know, before we move on and ask Martha the second question, you know, what are some things in your life, perhaps, that you realize have been competing for your attention? And could it be a moment where you realize that in the same way that God called Martha to have a laser-like focus on the one thing that was the most important thing in her life, could you hear the same call that God has in your life to, to have a laser-like focus on the one thing that is the most important thing in your life? And it's Jesus who, as the book of Colossians says, made all things and for whom all things were made. Your life exists for Jesus, and he lives for you. But as we come back to this conversation between Martha and I, I've got a second question. Same question I've been asking. I say, Martha, okay, if God has called you to take up a laser-like focus on the one thing that is the most important thing, and that one thing is Jesus. What did it cost you to lay down? You know, because you've got to let go of something in order to pick that up. You've got to let go of something in order to hold on to that one thing, and that one thing is Jesus. What did you have to let go of? And she looked up, and she responded and said this. Remember how I told you that, of course, my life is filled with so many details not found in Scripture, and yet as it's revealed in Scripture, my life, as it's described, is bookended by two meals. A meal with Jesus. And in that first meal, it was the first time that I ever met Jesus. And I realized that in that that first meal, there was something that I was holding on tighter in my life and in my mind and in my actions and in my deeds. I was holding on to that thing tighter than I could ever imagine holding on to someone else. And the one thing that God was calling me to, to lay down was simply this. A laser-like focus on what I could do for Jesus. In fact, I, I want you to imagine this scene in order to explain what I mean by that. Again, I am the head of the household. Uh, Mary is my younger sister. Lazarus is my younger brother. In fact, it's described in Scripture as Jesus coming to Bethany and comes to my house 
And it's described that way because it was my house. I was. I was the head of the household. I was responsible for my family. I was responsible for hosting a meal. And so what an opportunity. What a gift. What an honor. Not knowing the fullness of who Jesus is or was, I I had the honor of hosting a meal in my home. Everyone in the village would know that he came to my home. And it would be my hospitality that would impress him. It would be my meal that would impress him. It would be my setting the scene that would impress him. And yet the only problem was that my sister was nowhere to be found. We had so much work to do. To cook, to prepare, to set the table. And I'm so distracted by all the things that we have to do. This isn't just any guest. This is Jesus from Nazareth. Rumors of him being the Messiah, the Son of God. And my sister Mary is nowhere to be found. And so what do I do? I, I, I get up for my preparations. I get up for my meal making. And I go and I, and I get to Jesus. And I want you to know, this is the first thing that I ever said to Jesus. And it shows you, I believe, how my focus wasn't on Jesus, but my focus is was entirely on what I could do for Jesus because I first went to him and I started to complain. And these were the first words that came out of my lips, speaking to Jesus from Nazareth, and I said this, Lord, do you not care? I mean, imagine that. That's the first thing that I ever said to Jesus. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? That one sentence, looking back, revealed to me that my focus wasn't on Jesus. My focus was entirely on what I could do for Jesus. And that might sound not that different, but I can't tell you how vastly different the trajectories of those perspectives can be. In that moment, I cared so much about what I was doing that that was everything for me. And because I wasn't able to do it at the level that I wanted to do it because my sister wasn't helping me, Jesus wasn't telling her to come and help me, I not only was bitter at Mary, I was mad at Jesus. Because I was so focused on what I was doing for Jesus, I actually, I had a distorted view of my sister and I had a distorted view of Jesus. And I'll never forget his response to me. He said, Martha, Martha. And there was something about how he, Jesus, said my name twice that caught my attention. He wasn't rushed in what he was going to say. He was so present with me and he longed for me to be present with him. And he said my name twice, Martha, Martha. You are worried and distracted by many things. And the imagery of the language that he used to tell me that in my native tongue, in my native language, gave two pictures. He was saying that I was torn in many pieces going in vastly different directions. And it so described how I felt. I was, 
I was torn apart. I was, I was fragmented. I was frazzled. Because I wasn't focused on Jesus. I was focused on what I was doing for Jesus. But the second thing that he was saying was that I was like a boat capsized and stuck in a current and could not steer where I could go. And there was something about his presence saying my name twice, painting a picture that perfectly described my heart and my mind. It stopped me in my tracks. And then he said this, there is need of only one thing. There is need of only one thing. There is need of only one thing. Then I realized that in the vastness of all the things that I was doing, I wasn't focused on the one thing that I needed. And it was Jesus. In all the doing for him, I forgot about him. In all the serving of him, I forgot about the one whom I was serving for. And then he finished and he said this. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. He didn't say what I was doing was wrong. He just said what Mary was focusing on was better. And it wasn't what she was doing. It was who she was focused on, and it was Jesus. And so, Drew, you've asked me the question, what is the one thing that God called me to take up? And it was simply this, to have a laser focus on the one thing, the most important thing in my life. And that thing is a person, and that person is Jesus. And what it cost me to lay down was to lay down an improportionate focus on what I wanted to do for Jesus. But that's only the half of it. Because after that meal wrapped up and I began to realize that the one thing that I needed was Jesus, that's when the events of my brother Lazarus transpired. And again, I had been on a trajectory from that first meal to realize, discover that Jesus could be, should be, might be the very thing that I could focus on to give me the very thing that I thought the other things could give. And yet I was still on that journey. And so I've already told you about that interaction with Jesus after the death of my brother Lazarus. And I realized that in that moment, kind of on the other side of the coin from being so focused on what I could do for Jesus, I realized in that moment, I wasn't focusing on Jesus after my brother had died. I was so focused on simply what Jesus could do for me. Again, at that first meal is what I could do for Jesus. That was the focus. But now that my brother had died, it was all about what can Jesus do for me? Both of those scenarios didn't focus on Jesus. They focused on the transaction that I could do for Jesus and what Jesus could do for me. And in that moment, I realized and I was confronted with the fact that in wanting Jesus to do something for me the way I wanted it to be done on my timeline, that the way I approached Jesus two miles outside of Bethany after my brother had died was really the same heart and the same posture that I had approached Jesus in the midst of the meal. 
I was angry at him. I was disappointed at him. I was bitter at him. And I confronted him out there in the countryside outside Bethany the same way I confronted him in that meal. But something was different the second time because not only did I say, Lord, if you would have just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I remembered in that moment that Jesus had said, there's one thing that matters. And in that moment, that memory popped up and I said, I finished the sentence and I said to Jesus, but I, but I know that God will do whatever you ask of him. And as I've already shared, Jesus said, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe? And it enabled me in that moment to just it let go, to lay down the need for Jesus to do for me what I wanted him to do. And I focused on him and I said, yes, I believe. And in that belief, I got to experience something I never thought could happen. Jesus marched forward to that tomb. He yelled with the voice of a lion, Lazarus, come out. And my brother came out four days after he died. I experienced, I witnessed, I had front row seats to Jesus doing immeasurably more than I could ever asked or imagined. And yet, really, that wasn't the greatest miracle. The great miracle was the realization that Jesus is who he says he is. And so he called me to take up, to pick up a laser-like focus on the one thing, the most important thing in my life, and that's Jesus. And what it cost me, what I needed to lay down so I could hold on to Jesus was to lay down focusing too much on what I could do for Jesus, but also lay down focusing so much on what I wanted him to do for me. And in that moment, Martha stopped talking. She looked at the fire and I, like us perhaps around this bonfire with the space to reflect, begin to think about times in my own life where, man, I can relate and I can relate not just as a pastor, not just as somebody in the past who volunteered at the church, but just as a follower of Christ. You know, we read about these things in Scripture that Jesus calls us to do, to love our neighbor as ourself, to, to pray for our enemies. You know, the life of faith is an active one in which there's action, in which there's decisions, in which there's work, not work to earn God's love, but work in response to God's love. And I realize that Gosh, I think there's been seasons in my life where I've been more focused on what I could do for Jesus than on Jesus himself. What about you? Has the maybe practice of always being on time and always getting your Bible reading in, you know, you always got that the time of the day, perhaps some of you, and you're, you always get it done, you know, is the, the activity, is that becoming more important? Is the routine of that becoming more important than the one whom speaks the word of God to you is? Or volunteering, or serving, or, or, or doing things for Jesus. Can you relate to Martha? Is there something, or perhaps in the past, something that you've had in your life where you've begun focusing more on the serving of Jesus than Jesus himself. You know, I love in scripture how it says that we, we must never forget our first love. And that first love is expressed from God to us through Jesus. 
And we can fall in love with doing things for Jesus, but, but Scripture says don't forget, don't, don't abandon your first love. What about the other side of the coin? You know, I can think about times in which I've wanted things from God. I've prayed, I've petitioned, I've hoped, I've waited. And it seems like God is not answering my prayers on my timeline the way I want. You know, I can relate to Martha as well. I can imagine times in my life where I've been, I've been frustrated. I've said kind of in my own way, God, if, if only you would have done this. What about you? Are there things you're praying about right now? Things you're hoping for, longing for? Things that you are wanting Jesus to do for you? And it's not that those are bad things. They can be good things. Things that actually Jesus tells you to pray for, to ask for. It's not about not asking Jesus for things, but have those things become more important than the one thing that matters. Have the blessings become more important than the blesser. Have the gifts become more important than the giver? Have the, the answered prayers become more important than the one who invites you to come to him to find your rest, your peace, your significance, your joy? We sit in this moment reflecting on Martha's answers. And then I have a chance to ask her the third and final question. And I say, Martha, okay. You know, I've heard you say that uh, God called you, that God uh, invited you to, to pick up, to take up by choice, a laser-like focus on the one thing in your life that mattered, Jesus, the person. And what it cost you to, to let go of was uh, maybe an improportionate focus on what you could do for Jesus, but also an improportionate focus on what Jesus could do for you. Okay, I understand that. Here's my question. Was it worth it? And Martha looks up from the fire and with a smile on her face, she says this. You know, Drew and, and, and all, I, I told you that so many details of my life never found their way to be revealed in Scripture. And yet how my life revealed in Scripture was bookended by two meals. I shared with you the first meal. The first time I ever met Jesus, I shared with you how in that experience there was this, this opportunity, this honor, uh, this experience where I, I could be known. Martha, Jesus would come to my house. And I, and I quickly realized that I was focused on the wrong thing. And how after that meal, I began to learn and press in deeper and deeper, not into just what I could do for Jesus, not just what I wanted, but, but who Jesus was as the resurrection and the life, the one thing that mattered, the one thing that my sister Mary understood right from the beginning. And that brings us to the second meal, the bookends of how my life in Scripture was revealed. I want you to imagine this. After that first meal, after the miraculous healing of my brother, the first time I had ever heard about, we had ever heard about someone raising up from the dead, I then hosted a second meal in my home. But I want you to hear something so clearly from my lips, that it was still my home. Hospitality still had to be extended. Food still needed to be cooked. Preparations still needed to be made. 
And when you think about all the things that I had to do between the first meal and the second meal, I want you to understand that all the activity was exactly the same. It was the same amount of work. It was the same amount of preparation. It was the same amount of cooking. But here's what the difference was. In that second meal, my focus had changed. In the first meal, I was doing all these things, but my focus was on the things. In the second meal, I was doing all these things, but my focus was through the things to the one that mattered, and it was Jesus. And that was so liberating. It was so freeing because I realized in that second meal that there's still work to be done. And yet the focus and the motivation is what matters to God's heart. In that second meal, while I prepared all the food, I did so without bitterness towards my sister. As I prepared all that food and did all the preparations, I did so without bitterness towards Jesus. I wasn't filled with frustration. I wasn't filled with distractions. I wasn't pulled and torn apart in multiple pieces. I wasn't a boat capsized, flowing down the current without direction. I was present with Jesus through my serving. I was present with Jesus through my hospitality. I was present with Jesus through the work of my hands. And it was in the context of that meal that I witnessed my sister do something so beautiful that alabaster jar with expensive perfume, almost a year's worth of wages, that thing would cost on the open market. She took that, she broke that, she, she anointed Jesus for his burial. And while that meal looked different, looked the same on the surface, while that meal looked the same on the surface, the, the motivations couldn't have been more different. And in the first one where I confronted Jesus and he said, you're focused on the wrong thing. There was no rebuke from Jesus in that second meal. Because as we made eye contact multiple times through that evening, as we talked later on, I knew that he knew that my heart was focused on him. And she stopped. And as I'm reflecting on this, I my mind is going in a, a million directions and I begin to realize that there's this great opportunity that Jesus has invited us into. That to focus on Jesus doesn't mean we have to quit our job, doesn't mean we have to abandon our work, doesn't mean we have to just put everything aside, doesn't mean we have to, to move out into the wilderness so we have no distractions so we can just focus in on Jesus. No, no, no. The invitation is that through everything we do, no matter what is before us, no matter what work, no matter what task, no matter with others or alone, no matter our health, no matter our level of wealth, no matter what is going on in our life, it is an opportunity to practice the presence of the one who is present with you. And so it reframes everything. It doesn't make the work that I do for Jesus bad. It enables me to see that that's the context through which I can focus on Jesus. It doesn't make me praying for Jesus to answer my prayers bad, but it, it enables me that through those prayers, I can just lean in and be closer to Jesus. What about you?
What do you have in the week ahead? What do you have later on today? What are you going to be doing in the next hour? What if that was an opportunity for you to learn from Martha, to not be distracted by these many things, to not be torn in many pieces, to not be a boat capsized, but through that activity, you would focus on the one thing that matters, and that thing is a person, and his name is Jesus. I am moved so tremendously by how present Jesus is with us. Even in the midst of our distractions, even in the midst of Martha's distractions, God's focus, God's presence was never distracted. And so my hope and my prayer is that as we continue with worship, that the God of all presentness will be present with you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are so good that you chose to step out of the comforts of heaven to be present with us here on earth. That having lived the perfect life, giving of your life in a sacrificial death so that through faith in you, we would be reconciled to God. I am so moved that you would choose to ascend to the right hand of the Father where you pour out your Holy Spirit for every person that believes so that your presence dwells within us. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would, you would quicken us and prompt us to be more present. With God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. In this moment, in the next, and forevermore. It's in Jesus' name we pray and we say together, amen.